So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Greetings and Welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox. It's been a little while since I've uploaded an episode of the Pro-Life Thinking podcast. Things have just gotten incredibly busy over here uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, I do have three episodes recorded that I hope to release soon, recorded with my co-hosts. Aaron Brake and Nathan Apodaca. I just have to find the time to edit them for post-production. I should hopefully be able to get to those soon. Now, a couple of things going on in my personal life, which to give a little bit of an idea of why things have just gotten pretty crazy, pretty busy. I've actually just auditioned as a keyboardist for a foreigner tribute band called Foreigner Unauthorized. I met with two of the guys yesterday to audition, and they liked what they heard. So I passed the first trial, and now I'm going to sit in on a rehearsal and see how things go from there. There's also one other person that they're considering, so it's not a sure thing for me, but I've been having to spend a lot of time rehearsing for that. Uh, Also, I've just had an article accepted in the journal Bioethics with two co-authors, Daniel Roger, who is a friend and co-worker in Life Training Institute, and Bruce Blackshaw, who's a friend and colleague of Daniel's. I don't think I've ever met him. We collaborated on this article. Now, Bioethics is one of the top five leading bioethics journals in the world, I'm given to understand. So it's pretty exciting to get published in that. Uh, I'll give more information as the date of publication gets closer. We're just doing some minor edits, and we have to resubmit it for publication. The topic of that article is infanticide. We're responding to a philosopher who critiqued the arguments of Christopher Kayser in his book, The Ethics of Abortion. So this philosopher, whose name I'm probably going to butcher, uh, Juna Rasanin, I believe he's Norwegian or something like that. I might, I might be getting his, his nationality wrong. But anyway, he responded to Kayser's arguments in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, and Rasanin is saying that Kayser's response just is not persuasive. And so Daniel Bruce and I have responded to his arguments, showing that Rasanin has not has not actually refuted Kayser's arguments. And so Kayser's arguments against infanticide still stand. And so that's the general topic of our of our article. And I also have an article that's going to be published next year in Christian Research Journal, which I'm currently working on right now, composing that one. And that's my third one for them. And the topic of that article is going to be on creationism versus traducianism, which is which should not be confused with creationism versus evolution. Uh, this is in regards to how does the soul get created uh, when the human being comes to be at fertilization? Is it created with the human being at fertilization, or is it passed down sort of spiritually as the uh, genetic material is passed down physically? That's kind of an in-house debate amongst Christians, and so it probably won't hold much interest to those who are not religious, or maybe even to those who are religious but not Christian, but maybe it will, because it's not specifically, not, not necessarily a, a specifically Christian argument, but someone who's religious and also believes in God might actually find the discussion compelling and interesting as well. So anyway, those are just 
some of the things I've had going on in my personal life. And I, and things should be slowing down here pretty soon. And so I hope to be able to get back to those three episodes that I still have, edit them for post-production, and then start recording some brand new content as well. So hopefully look for those coming up pretty soon. Now, the guest that I have joining me today is my friend and one of my pro-life mentors, Stephen Wagner. Steve Wagner is the executive director of Justice for All. He has spent hundreds of hours interacting with abortion choice advocates on over 50 university campuses in the United States and Canada. Frustrated by shallow stereotypes and disrespectful activism, he passionately works to build common ground in the seemingly endless abortion debate and make a reasonable and clear case for the pro-life position. He has debated professors at the University of Toronto and California State University and regularly trained students at the Focus Leadership Institute of Focus on the Family for seven years. Steve is the author of Common Ground Without Compromise, 25 Questions to Create Dialogue on Abortion in 2008, and he contributed to Apologetics for a New Generation in 2009 and the Youth Apologetics Study Bible in 2010. A native Californian, Steve now resides with his wife, Rebecca, and their four children in Washington, D.C., in his spare time, Steve enjoys good coffee and conversation, marveling at the improvisations of his kids, writing songs, living in community, and thinking of ways to surprise people. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, Clinton. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, ha to have you on. Uh, we're going to be recording this show live, and so I'm going to be interacting with Steve for about a half hour or so, and then I'll open it up to callers. If there are no callers, I'll continue on with my questions. But if you have a question for Steve, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, that number to call in is 646-668-8597. Steve, there's um, kind of a question I like to ask all of my guests, just kind of a way to, to get to know you a little bit. How did you become pro-life? Well, I think the... Um I think I've always been pro-life. I came from a pro-life family. And probably um, one of my earliest memories um, have to do with um, my brothers and sisters being born. So I watched my sister being born and then uh, two of my brothers. And I was actually present for the brother just uh, next to me, we have seven kids in our family. So the brother that came after me, I was three or two and a half when he was born. And uh, I was present then, but I don't remember it. But I do remember the other birth that I attended. And I think that um, uh, is maybe an illustration of the kind of family I grew up in. Uh, thinking about unborn children was very natural for us. We were uh, welcoming the child into our family well before birth. And so I think that's probably how I became pro-life. Uh, my parents uh, were always uh, teaching our family uh, about the value of every human being, and it, uh, including children in the womb. Um, and my parents really lived that out, not just uh, talked about it. They lived it um, in how they served uh, their family. So that's probably how I became pro-life. It was pretty well modeled to you by your parents then? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say they lived it out in how they, how they served their kids and people around them. Um, as we grew older, we had conversations about abortion in our home, um, I would say when I was a teenager. Uh, and I began to defend my pro-life views to people in 
uh, at my high school. Um, I remember a drive uh, with one of my high school friends uh, going back to college um, and talking about abortion in that context. Um, and so uh, I think I was uh, thinking about reasons for the pro-life position um, uh, at that time, but I really didn't have a good uh, idea of how to make my arguments persuasive or helpful to the person that I was talking to at that time. Could you tell us a little bit about Justice for All? Sure. Justice for All um, is uh, an organization that is um, passionate about creating a different kind of conversation, one where pro-choice advocates uh, actually uh, want to think about whether their position is true or not, where they, they enter into a sort of dialogue where they can rethink things in a safe uh, kind of environment. And when I say a different kind of conversation, I mean partly that it's a conversation with someone who disagrees with me. A lot of times, as pro-life advocates, we talk to people who agree with us, and we talk to more people who agree with us, and uh, some people call that an, an echo chamber. I think that is a, is a part of the pro-life movement. But I'd say at Justice for All, um, we want to go find people who disagree and try to create a different kind of conversation with them. And then it's a, a second passion of ours, uh, what we like to call a twin passion, uh, to train a different kind of advocate, a person who is winsome, uh, who... Um, it embodies a set of skills uh, that bring that really come alongside the other person, partner with them in in hopes of finding truth together. So um, that's what Justice for All is all about: is training pro-life advocates. Many times we're training Christians, but not always, uh, to create a different kind of conversation, really in hope of creating a different kind of world uh, where abortion is. Uh, unthinkable, just as unthinkable as slavery, and where we have a an affection uh, for unborn children and women and men in distress and those who are different from us. You train pro-life people to make this case, and you do that through seminars. You take your, yourself and, and others who, who work for JFA out to different cities uh, to give seminars to, this, to pro-life people. And about how often do you do these seminars? That's right. So we, we will do workshops and seminars, um, and we do uh, a number of these each month in different parts of the country, but we, we really like to couple any uh, sort of presentation or seminar or workshop event that we do with an outreach event where we can invite our, the people who came to the seminar to come along with us and at least listen into conversations, real conversations with people who disagree, um, uh, at least listen in, but hopefully have their own conversations. For us, we want people to gain a new set of skills, uh, a skill, the skills of dialogue. And the only way you can gain new skills like that is through actually practicing. And so we practice in the seminar. Our seminar is very interactive. And then we practice together out in a college campus environment, usually, where we create conversations 
with people through some sort of dialogue tool. For us, we use poll tables and big exhibits um, to try to help people have a reason to stop and talk to us. Um, I've really enjoyed working with you, Clinton, out at, at those events, so I'm hoping that we can, uh, we can do that again soon. Yeah, me too. Definitely, if, if they're out uh, in California, you'll, you'll most likely see me. If they're not in California, eh, you, you may or may not. It depends on, on if I'm needed or if they have enough people. Uh, but at, at, at any rate, whether I'm there or not, uh, I, I would greatly encourage everyone to, to check out JFA and to attend these seminars if, if you are able. That's basically where I got my start was with Justice for All and going through the seminar about three times before I started getting trained as a mentor for JFA. So I, I definitely am fully in support of JFA, and I would encourage everyone to, to check them out and attend a seminar if you can. And, Clint, I'm curious how the outreach, how you, what, what happened at your first outreach event? How did that go for you? Did you just listen in, or did you jump into conversations with people? Oh, um, <laughs> this was many moons ago. I, I don't remember specifically Probably what happened is I just listened in for the most part because I, I tend to be a bit on the on the shyer side, especially in person talking to people that I don't know. So I probably listened in more than I talked, but I, I'm sure I got involved in some conversations. And since then, you've been to many events with us. And uh, what's been your what, what's your experience been like? Uh, you mean as far as as mentoring or? Well, just to, yeah, in, or in conversations with people um, oh. out on campus. I, I've never really been the greatest conversationalist. You know, talk, talking to a you know on, on a podcast, I'm talking to you know basically talking to people that I know uh, or you know like a single guest that I talk to who's elsewhere, talking to them over a long distance. But when it comes to actually talking to them out on campus, going through JFA uh, has definitely increased my Bravery isn't exactly the right word for it. More of, I guess my confidence would be a better word in talking to people because uh, JFA, you know, they, they have these, these ideas, these things that they train you about regarding common ground and being a, a good ambassador and these kinds of things. But the, the skills that they teach you as far as having a conversation will greatly increase your confidence as well. So it's not just learning the material and the arguments so that you, you're confident that you can have a good response to these people, but it's also just having these conversations and learning these conversational tools will greatly increase your confidence as far as just starting conversations and having conversations. Because often I find that despite the fact that I'm not the greatest conversationalist, people will still say that they enjoyed their conversation with me when all I was really doing is just asking questions for the most part. Well, what I love about working with you, Clinton, is even though um, uh, you, you describe yourself as a shyer sort of personality, even though that's uh, how you are naturally, you work hard at starting conversations with people and uh, engaging them in conversation because you really care about them. And that's it's such a model, I think, for all pro-life advocates to, to uh, sort of get outside of ourselves and our own natural inclinations to try to, to reach out to, to someone who's different and, and try to... Uh, uh, make a difference in their life. That's, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on. Uh, you and Josh Brom, uh, who's really my first pro-life mentor, have really been instrumental 
and making me a better pro-life advocate. And so I wanted to not, not just advertise for JFA, even though I do want to do that, but also just to kind of hear in your own words some of these ideas and how they can improve our conversations as well. One of the main things that JFA teaches is about finding common ground with people. Uh, in, in your own words, what does it mean to find common ground with someone that you disagree with? So I think of common ground as, um, uh, on the one hand, it's an attitude, and on the other hand, it might be specific uh, uh, propositions or, or just sentences, areas of agreement uh, with the person. When I say it's an attitude, um, it, it, the idea of finding common ground, seeing in the other person something that's like me, identifying with the other person, empathizing with the other person's beliefs or their, um, their concerns. Um, that really uh, is something I try to let in, uh, infuse the entire conversation, every minute of every conversation. So there's this attitude that this is another, this is a human being just like me. We have common ground in that in, in that, uh, in who we are, we're both human beings. We both have limited knowledge. Uh, we both believe false things. So sometimes I um, reflect on the fact that this person I'm talking to, who believes that abortion should be legal, uh, uh, believes something that, that that I think is false. I think I have good reasons to believe it's false. But then I look in the mirror. And I say, well, I also believe many false things. It looks like we're in the same boat. And that takes me from a posture of I've got to change this person's mind or I, I get angry because they're, they, they have a different perspective. How can they believe in killing babies, you know, this sort of thing. And I change my posture to be shoulder to shoulder with them. We're on the same, really, even on the same team. We're both humans. We're both trying to get more true beliefs and fewer false ones. And so we're working on this project now together. And so I bring that attitude into every minute of every conversation, or at least that's my aim. I'm certainly not perfect at this. Um, and one way that uh, our listeners can, can grow in developing that attitude or that character is by just picking out specific things uh, and asking the person about them in hopes of finding common ground. So those would just be little bits of agreement anywhere in the conversation. If the person says anything that I can agree with, I try to call that out. I try to say, yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, and I spend a lot of time early in a conversation picking those things out. I don't spend a lot of time early in the conversation trying to change the person's mind, um, uh, partly because that's, I think, what I prefer. You know, I, I want people to try to understand me, and I've found that when I try to find common ground with people, um, that's a, a great tool for understanding what they meant when they said they were pro-choice, for example. So your book is called Common Ground Without Compromise, and, and we'll get to it uh, in a few minutes here, but what would you say is the difference between finding common ground with someone and compromising with that person? 
Well, I, I think I uh, can give an example of what compromise would look like. One of our volunteers came out to an outreach once, and I uh, heard about a conversation this volunteer had, or maybe I overheard it. I can't remember. It was a while back now. But this volunteer, the person, this volunteer is pro-life, believes abortion should not be legal, and in, is talking to someone who's pro-choice, and um, the, the person says, you know, I think abortion should, uh, should be legal. And I don't remember what the reason was. But let's just say they said because of poverty. Well, this pro-life volunteer, very well-meaning, well-intentioned, said, uh, well, I agree that I agree poverty is really difficult. I, I agree with you. And I think the implication in the conversation was she agreed that abortion should be legal. Um, and so it's really important that that she be careful not to just agree with everything the person's saying, uh, because she doesn't and genuinely agree that abortion should be legal for that reason. Um, and yeah, go ahead. I don't know. I, I just said I, I was just kind of indicating that, that I'm tracking with you. Yeah. So the it, there's really a, compromising would just be affirming things that we don't agree with. And this is a, an approach to common ground that's been, I guess, common uh, in certain circles. So if, if someone says, look, we just need to agree to disagree, we're gonna find common ground on preventing pregnancy. So we're gonna talk about abortion and here's how we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna focus on preventing pregnancy. Um, so that, many times for pro-choice advocates means let's talk about how birth control and condoms are the solution to all of these problems, pregnancy, unplanned pregnancy, abortion. Um, well, that if I leave the conversation there and that's all I talk about, well, I think that's an act of compromise for me. Mm. Uh, I can talk about that for a little while. I don't mind talking about preventing pregnancy. I agree. We, we should talk about how to prevent pregnancy. Um, especially maybe with something that would actually work, like self-control. Um, I, I want to talk about that. Um, but the, um, if that's all I talk about, I'm, I'm leaving the unborn child out of the conversation completely, as if they were not real human beings, as if they were not being killed 2,500 times today in America. Yeah. And that would be compromising. So somehow we have to uh, find common ground, little points of agreement, maybe big points of agreement, without leaving out this whole other part of our perspective that's really important, especially in this conversation, uh, which would be the question, what is the unborn? Mm -hmm. um, so I think, uh, I think that would be one uh, way to compromise. I think another way to compromise would be to leave out the woman as if she were not a human being, as if she didn't have the same rights and value that uh, we think the unborn child has. I think another way of compromise would be to leave out the person I'm talking to and treat them as a less than human, uh, but, but actually they are a real human, just like the unborn child. So somehow we have to balance our love or integrate our love for each of these groups of people, the unborn child, 
the woman and uh, who's considering abortion, um, the uh, the person that we're talking to, somehow we have to integrate our love for all of those people at the same time at every moment of every conversation. And if we don't, I think there's a, an element of compromise. So um, many, many times I've seen people just agree and stop there. So that's a much easier conversation, right? There's no disagreement, right. so we don't have to have the, the discomfort of, of not understanding the person, of mm-hmm. thinking that they, you know, maybe thinking they're crazy or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Those are messy parts of a conversation where you discuss disagreements. Yeah. And I think those are really important, um, uh, important parts of the conversation. Uh, we can't just stop and say, look, we agree that late-term abortion is wrong, and that's good enough. Well, it turns out there aren't that many late-term abortions. They are important to talk about to a point. But what about abortions at, um, uh, you know, early in the first trimester, the most common abortions? I want to talk about those because if I don't, I'm, again, treating the unborn child as if he or she is not really a human being. You mentioned talking about things like contraception and another Another argument that I've noticed a lot of pro-choice people making recently, and even some pro-life people have seemed to be, I guess, kind of compromising in that way in which they feel that they should accept the premise of the pro-choice person is they'll say something like, you know, you're just anti-abortion. You're not pro-life. If you were pro-life, you would be against capital punishment. You'd be for welfare. You'd be, you'd agree with me on all of these other pet issues that I have, which seems like a way to try and get the focus of pro-life people off of the unborn as a way to lessen the impact. And I I think that some pro-life people have kind of been falling for that as well. I think that's right. And I think, I I think there's a, uh, um, a tendency of some pro-life advocates to want to argue about all of these things. Um, one of a classic case would be overpopulation. A person brings up overpopulation or um, uh, uh, in, environmental impacts of humans all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and. Pro-life advocates sometimes are concerned about those issues, and they they um, they want to then debate it. Well, no, the world really isn't overpopulated. I mean, look, you know, and they'll bring up um, uh, some example of some place in the world that's not doesn't seem to have much population. And of course, that misses the point of what the person usually is bringing up. And uh, I think we need to avoid uh, that impulse to want to argue about everything. Um, at least not, you know, I mean, we need to treat different, uh, different ones of these issues as more important or less important. Um, and so with overpopulation, what we encourage people to do is just agree for the sake of the argument. Mm-hmm. We're not telling them to change, to, to, uh, compromise or to say, um, you know, I agree with you if they don't actually agree that the world's overpopulated, but let's just agree for the sake of the argument that, one classic version of the overpopulation argument is true that there aren't, there isn't enough food in the world to feed all the people. And if we have a million more people in America um, each year, we can't feed them instead of saying, you know, making what might be a good argument. No, I think we do have enough food to feed the people and 
maybe bringing out a journal article about how we do have enough food. That might be important in a debate, but in a conversation where I'm one-on-one with someone, I'm just going to say, well, let's just assume that you're right about that. Let me agree with you for the sake of the argument. And then we can get back to the issue at hand. I can say, let's agree for the sake of the argument that we don't have enough food to feed people. Imagine I had a two-year-old here. Can we kill him because we don't have enough food to feed him? And, And that, of course, you know, the response is generally going to be, no, we can't kill the two-year-old. And my, I'm, I'm going to uh, ask a sort of stupid question. Well, why can't we kill the two-year-old? I, I think I know your answer, but, I, you know, I want to see if we agree. Is it because they're human beings? Well, then that's the issue. Is the unborn a human being like this two-year-old? Uh, if we don't have enough food to feed everyone, that's not a good reason to kill a real bona fide human being. Mm. So yeah, that's one then, way that we get we, we we don't spend our time on on some of these other issues. So capital punishment you brought up, um, mm. I, I, it's an important issue. But the way I've found common ground with people on capital punishment is to try to get to the bottom of why they think it's wrong to um, uh, why they think capital punishment is wrong. And in many cases. Pro-choice people who are against capital punishment are against it because they believe it's being used to kill innocent people. Now, that's something that I can agree with. I don't think we should use capital punishment to kill innocent people. And, in fact, I don't know anybody who believes that. So that's one way that you can kind of focus in on this again, the issue. Is it killing an innocent human being? That helps me to get back to the question, what is the unborn? rather than get stuck on another, uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, another topic. Yeah, and so it's not to say that these other topics aren't important to discuss, but in the context of an abortion discussion, they just serve as, as a distraction, something to get us off the topic. And so we need to bring that conversation back on topic, which is when we would use the trot at the toddler tool, as you, as you just uh, described. Yeah, I think so. I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but just so we highlight it, why is finding common ground with pro-choice people so important? Well, I, I, it, it, there's a practical reason that it's important, that it helps the conversation to go better, helps my arg- the person that I'm talking to to be more open to my arguments, uh, helps them to want to talk to me rather than to just want to get out of there which I think is sometimes a pro-choice person's um, attitude towards the pro-life person. Those are all practical benefits of using common ground. Uh, But I think there's maybe a a more important reason to uh, find common ground. It's more, uh, you might say, intrinsic or uh, intrinsic to, or, or maybe a principled reason, I guess I would say. And that is, it's the right thing to do, or it's honest. Um, uh, it, it, it has the, uh, the look, when I look at the, this other person, I think it's important for me to treat them as the sort of being that they are. They're a human being. They deserve a certain kind of respect from me. They deserve that as a part of their nature. Uh, they were built with a certain kind of, they were created with a certain kind of value uh, that I need to respect. Um, I think 
we are uh, both rational beings that, that should take seriously the other person's uh, reasons, take seriously what the other person is trying to communicate with their language. Um, and so I think there, the, the principled reason of uh, common, uh, you know, of uh, 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 common ground helps us to do that, I guess, helps us to treat this person as a real human being. Um, I think the, um, I think it also helps us to express our love for the truth. Um, and I think we should love the truth, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's inconvenient to our argument. Um, many times I have said to people in our outreach events that I don't have a natural affection for the unborn child at implantation. And we even show a picture of what that looks like, even though it's a bit inconvenient for our argument. Um, the, uh, the embryo at implantation looks like an orange with fungus on it. Um, now, it is not actually an orange with fungus on it, and we shouldn't treat it the way we treat oranges that have fungus on them. We throw them in the trash, right? Or we throw them in the compost pile. We shouldn't treat embryos at uh, implantation like that because right. uh, our, our visual senses are deceiving us or our natural affections are deceiving us about what this embryo actually is, which is a human being with the same value that we have. But I've said to people many times, look at this embryo. I, I don't have a natural affection for it, but the facts, uh, compel me to try to, to bring my natural affections into line with those facts. Um, but I think that's an important moment for the conversation. It shows the person and it shows me that I care more about the truth than winning a debate or winning the person over to the pro-life position or uh, any of those things. So what are some areas then that pro-life and pro-choice people can find common ground on? Because it seems like the abortion issue, you know, often when we have these discussions, it can kind of seem insurmountable because it often causes people to, to get angry, to get upset, especially if mm -hmm. we're talking to someone who's had uh, an, an abortion in her past or maybe a, a man who took a, a woman in for one. And so considering that it's such a heated discussion, what are some areas that we can find common ground on with pro-choice people? Well, I'm going to, uh, it's a great question. And uh, the first area that I would like to suggest is, is um, that some uh, reasons for abortion are understandable. So, and, and some are maybe more understandable than others. But when someone says that women, uh, a woman is, who's in poverty is in a really difficult place and for them, it seems like abortion um, is justified or is, is okay. Um, I think it's important for us to take a moment and say, I really agree with you. Un being confronted by an unplanned pregnancy, when you're maybe even too poor to care for yourself, is really difficult. That's painful. It's uh, it's. Uh, I don't know if I understand what that feels like. You know, all of those statements 
are an important way of saying, uh, I agree with you, uh, and finding common ground. Now, notice this is, a, this is giving voice to something that might feel like it's more of a pro-choice leaning kind of thing. I'm okay with that. And I think it's important that when we talk about common ground, we don't just see it as a, a tool of pro-life people to get pro-choice people to be against more abortions. That is, I mean, that is a, a, a there is a place for common ground on late-term abortion, right? Most people think it should not be legal. And that's a pro-life sort of approach to abortion, right? That's what right. people would say. That's a pro-life perspective. But yeah. I think it's important for us to realize that common ground is not just us pro-life people uh, expecting pro-choice people to agree with things that we believe. Agree with abortions that I think are bad. Agree with all the abortions that I think are bad. Oh, now you agree with all of them, that all abortions uh, through all nine months are bad, let's say. Well, that, uh, that's, it, that's not all of the common ground that I'm talking about, because I believe the pro-choice person should also not be expected to compromise in order to have the conversation, in order to start the conversation, etc. So uh, they shouldn't have to just give up their pro-choice perspective just to even enter the conversation or be a part of it with me. They should be able to... Um, that we need to respect their need to find common ground without compromise as well. So really this idea of common ground without compromise has to go both directions. So when I say I think that, I think that it's understandable that someone would want to get an abortion if they were poor, um, it's not going to be hard for the pro-choice person to agree with that because that's, that's really their perspective. You know, then they're going to be more open to me trying to find common ground on something that maybe seems like more of a pro-life kind of concern. Something like, you know, late-term abortion should not be legal. Um, they will feel like it's, it's more of a level playing field then. Part of finding common ground with pro-choice people also includes using the terms they prefer, correct? So, for example, calling them pro-choice instead of calling them pro-death or anti-life, things like that. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, uh, what we've found in uh, just hundreds of conversations, our, our staff over the years have had thousands of conversations with pro-choice people, and we've found that if we can not, if we can just use their terminology, it just makes the conversation so much easier. Um, many, we prefer to use the term unborn. For the child, I know some of my friends pre prefer to use the term preborn. Um, I think, you know, we can have discussion about which is preferable, but um, the more that we talk about the unborn child as if he or she is a child, as if he or she is a he or she, as if uh, this is a real human being, it's going to feel um, like a trick. It's going to feel like we're stacking the deck to a lot of pro-choice people. And that's why we use more neutral terms like unborn um, early in the conversation. Now, once I've made a case that the unborn is a living human organism and all living human organisms, um, 
you know, you could, I, I think, call a human being. Well, then we might ascribe more human terms uh, to the unborn because we've demonstrated that. And, and let's just say we've gotten agreement from the person that this, the unborn is a living human organism or is a human being. Well, then there's no problem with calling the unborn a he or she and, and that sort of thing. But early yeah, in the so, conversation, I want to use a term that's not going to put an unnecessary roadblock or stumbling block in the person's way. And, and so that also includes using scientific terms like embryo and fetus, uh, as opposed to terms like you were saying, terms like preborn, uh, or even terms like baby or child. Whereas we would say it's correct terminology to call an unborn baby a baby because any pregnant woman right. when she's not talking about abortion is going to say she's with child or she's going to refer to her to refer to her fetus right. as her baby but in the in the right. context of abortion discussions you prefer to use the more scientific terms again so that it doesn't seem like we're trying to stack the deck or use overly emotional language is that correct that's right no that's right and and embryo and fetus um, don't have the uh, people don't think that we're uh, I don't know trying to get traction in the conversation um, without making an argument. And I think that's actually just a good discipline for us. If you haven't made a good case or given an argument, given a reason for your position, uh, well then you can't just assume it throughout the conversation by calling something by a certain name. Um, I've just found that that's really helpful if I try to use the other person's language. I mean, we're already doing cross-cultural work here uh, or, or, you know, two different worldviews are talking, right? In many cases, right. I'm talking with a utilitarian who has a very different uh, moral framework uh, than I do. And it's already like we're, we're, in, we're talking to someone in a foreign country or with a foreign language. And so it makes it even harder if we use terms that are special to us. I mean, this is another reason why, or another example of this might be, should we use arguments from the Bible uh, when we're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible? Uh, well, uh, I think it's best to use their framework and their worldview until it becomes clear to both of us in the conversation that their framework or worldview isn't able to explain some of the, some of the uh, shared beliefs that we have, like if our shared, we have a shared belief in equal rights and we find that a materialist view of the universe can't explain equal rights or human value or why uh, certain behaviors are wrong, uh, you know, like uh, rape, for example. Why is that wrong? If a materialist view comes up short uh, when we ask it to explain those realities, well, then now is there's a there, that's a good time to bring up this, the the biblical worldview or the view of Jesus um, on those things. And now now the, the person I think is going to be more likely to be interested in in Jesus. Now he might actually be a solution to a problem and not just. Uh, not just a religious figure that you're, you have a, a kind of a club that you go to on Sunday and, and um, it's centered around this religious figure. No, now Jesus is, is 
very real in the conversation. So I think I, I definitely want to get, as a Christian, I want to get to that point. Uh, but I, I many times will start with science and philosophy, and I know you folks at Life Training Institute take the same approach. To start with science and philosophical arguments that are uh, based on um, uh, something that people of many different worldviews can can uh, appreciate and tie into from the beginning. We're about coming up to our halfway point for the interview. Uh, again, if you have any questions for for my uh, guest Steve Wagner, you can call in at six four six 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 eight eight five nine seven. Once again, that number is 646-668-8597. And uh, if I don't get any callers, then I'll have plenty of questions for, for Steve. But if you have questions for him, uh, please don't hesitate to, to call in. So your book, Common Ground Without Compromise, what was it that, I guess, what was it that kind of in, inspired you to write, write a book on this topic? Well, let me just say before, I just want to make sure we don't forget uh, during our time together here, Clinton, um, if people go and Google my book, and or maybe they go to Amazon to find it. Uh, what they'll find is some used copies because the book is currently out of print. And it was published in 2008. Uh, but I was just looking at it this evening and was was pleased to see that many of the examples that I put in the book are durable. Uh, they they aren't time sensitive, if you will. So I think people will be able to get a lot out of the book. Uh, it is available right now for free. Um, through uh, the website that's devoted to the book, commongroundbook.com, commongroundbook.com. That takes people to a landing page, and the first link on the page says free book offer. If you click on that, um, there's actually a, a way that you can get uh, an ebook version of the book uh, for free. So I'd invite anyone who's listening uh, to take me up on that, on that offer. Uh, actually, I did have a note here to talk about the the free offer uh, near the near the end, but uh, that's okay. We can uh, talk about it now. Definitely, I, I would encourage that as well. I actually did get the book for free before I picked up a physical copy myself. Yeah, are there any plans? So I'll put off your question, uh, Clinton. So what? Uh, I'm yeah. sorry. Go oh ahead. no, no, that's okay. Just, just real quick before we return to the question, uh, are there any plans to uh, to turn your book into like an ebook that they could upload to their Kindle or something? I do have plans to do that, but I don't have a, uh, a date of arrival on that. It's something okay. that I've had on my uh, on my list to uh, to do for for a while. So I'm hoping okay. uh, soon that people can put it on their Kindle. I'm hoping also to have an audio book version uh, before too long. So uh, people should definitely contact me via the. Uh, if they go to that page, commongroundbook.com, or if they go to Justice for All's website, jfaweb.org, uh, they can send me a note and let me know that they really want one of those uh, uh, versions of the book, uh, and uh, that'll maybe give me an, an extra dose of motivation. Mm -hmm. I'm eager to do it. I just have a lot of things on my plate. So. Yeah, I, I certainly know how that goes. <laughs> To return to the, the question, then, it's just, uh, I was just curious on uh, what inspired you to, to write your book. So I, I, I was mentored by Scott Klusendorf at Stand to Reason, and then Scott uh, uh, created the Life Training Institute. And I stayed on at Stand to Reason at that time. But I, uh, at that time, very much just wanted to increase 
the number of people that heard good reasons for the pro-life position. I wanted to train Christians to make a good case in the public square, uh, and I wanted to um, see uh, see people, um, I, I guess, more people hear those arguments. And I didn't feel like there was any need for any more material to be created. Um, it took me about five years or so before I felt like I had something to contribute to the to the pro-life literature. Um, and this book actually is a little bit unique in that it's meant to be a letter to pro-choice and pro-life people. It's meant to be a, a book for both groups. So I wrote it very purposely as something that a pro-life person could give to a pro-choice person and use to start a conversation, or they could take one of the questions and share it with a pro-choice person in hopes of creating a better conversation or, or to start a conversation with, with that person. Um, the, but really the genesis of the book was that I spent, starting in 2002, and especially, um, well, in 2002, I went to my first Justice for All exhibit and talked to a lot of pro-choice people. And that started me down a certain path where I developed a passion for getting these arguments, not just in front of pro-life people, but actually having conversations with pro-choice people. And so I think it was in 2003, I went to a number of Justice for All exhibits, and then I was the main trainer for Justice for All for a few years, uh, for really the five-year period from 2003 to 2008, when I published this book. And in that time, I spent a lot of time talking with pro-choice people and that's what produced the book, because when you go talk to pro-choice people, you find that you have to do something different. You can't just give them the pro-life argument. You're going to have to try to agree with them and try to understand them and try to partner with them as a, a, sort of a co-laborer in finding the truth. And uh, so the idea is about common ground uh, we're really born out of that field research, if you will, or this that time in the field. And our team still goes out on campus. I was just out at the University of Oklahoma two weeks ago. It's still our passion to go find people who disagree and create good dialogue with them in, in hopes that they'll, um, they'll come to have a more true perspective on the unborn child and women in distress and, and on abortion. The subtitle of your book is 25 Questions to Create Dialogue on Abortion. So a lot of these questions, as I was looking back through your book to prepare for the interview tonight, a lot of these questions I can see are questions that we can find common ground with pro-choice people. But are, are all of the questions questions that we will definitely have common ground on, or are they just more to get a dialogue going? That's a great, that's a great question. These are 25 questions that I thought have a better chance at uh, helping us find common ground. They are certainly not foolproof. Some people might hear one of the questions and not agree with you. You know, I've asked people, do you think abortion should be legal in the 35th week? And they say yes. Well, okay, now we, it didn't help us find common ground, right? I've, I've right. asked people if they think 
um, if they think abortion is okay when it's being used as birth control. And they'll say, yeah, I, I, no, I'm against it for myself, but I can't, we can't make it illegal for that reason. Okay, well, I have a little bit of common ground with them on being against it being used as birth control, but we don't have common ground on the legality question, uh, point, uh, the legality part of that. So um, I, I think these questions are, uh, as Tim Brom at the Equal Rights Institute might say, they're sort of high probability play. Uh, you know, it's the, the sort of question that you're, you're more likely to get common ground with, but it, I, I wouldn't say that it's a certainty. Some of the questions, very common that people will agree with us or will agree with them, um, but, but some are more, um, you know, uh, th- some of them are more food for thought where they can lead to productive discussion even if people don't agree right off the bat. So the question about Down syndrome is like that. You know, I, I, I think people are, I don't, you know, uh, I don't know if everybody's against having abortion be legal to deal with Down syndrome, but a lot of people are really uh, fond of Down syndrome, people with Down syndrome. So we can explore that with them because there's, you know, there's this, this sort of ambivalence or, you know, two sides to it for, for a lot of people. They're not going to be yeah. one dimensional. And I think that's maybe a big part of this book. It's, I don't think most people are one dimensional, mm. all pro-life or all pro-choice uh, or, you know, fit the stereotypes, fit into the categories that are on the, the maybe on TV or something. Actually, the question about Down syndrome has become a little bit more poignant recently because there's an article that made the rounds on social media about how I want to say it was the Netherlands, but they, there was an article about how they're claiming that they've almost that they've almost eliminated Down syndrome, but the way that so they've I almost think eliminated you're about Iceland, I think that's, uh, that's what's Iceland. I think was it Iceland? Okay, yeah, it's yeah, some, yeah. So. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that sounds right. That people in Iceland have basically eliminated Down syndrome, but the way they've done that is that almost 100% of babies conceived with Down syndrome have been aborted. So that was kind of a misleading headline that they gave to that article. Right. Right. And, and, but see, you know, it's interesting when you get into that issue with people, I think the more questions we can ask, um, mm-hmm. the more common ground we can find, uh, you know, and, and maybe we don't agree on whether it should be legal or not. Um, but I really want to help people start to develop an affection for human beings, both those who are born already and those who are yet to be born and and so when we talk about uh uh you know whether down syndrome is a good reason you know whether we want to eradicate down syndrome and whether if that means eradicating you know human beings and what does that mean for kids with down syndrome now you know what is that how does that um reflect on the value of their lives so I think there's a, I think there's a lot there, even if we don't have uh, common ground on whether it should be legal or not. I think that brings up an important point, though, Clinton, is uh, that uh, the more questions that we ask about these things, specific uh, 
reason, specific circumstances surrounding the abortion, um, like the a diagnosis of Down syndrome, for example, specific times of the pregnancy, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, or maybe even more specific, the first seven weeks uh, from fertilization, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, the more specific we can be in our questions, uh, the more helpful it's going to be to the conversation. What I've found is if we ask those specific questions, we find all sorts of common ground because we realize people are not all, they aren't the stereotypes. Actually, the stereotypes, the prejudices that we have built up, the baggage that we put onto this topic, you know, there's these pro-life and pro-choice camps. That's all not really true. Uh, people aren't like that. People are, I like to say people are weird. You know, they have a whole kind of complex set of mismatched ideas. And they may be confused, or they may just not have thought through all of them, or they may not have put them in together into an integrated whole mm. or a coherent whole, I guess you could say. Yeah. I, I would like to talk about some of the questions in your book in a moment, but uh, one interesting piece of common ground that I've discovered that we can find with academic philosophers is regarding bodily rights arguments. I, I recently, yeah, I recently wrote an article on secular pro-life uh, responding to uh, Juno Rosanen, who I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, I wrote an article responding to one of his for a bioethics journal. I interacted with him a little bit in the comments section of, a, of an article written on a bioethics website. And he wrote an article about bodily rights and how many philosophers, philosophers like Judith Jarvis Thompson, David Boonin, etc., actually would say that even though a woman they believe has a right to an abortion, because bodily rights would grant her that right to an abortion, that right to an abortion does not guarantee the right to a dead baby. That if you can remove the unborn embryo or fetus safely without killing him, such as to place him into an artificial environment like an artificial womb, well, then that right to an abortion is just a right to removal. It's not a right to the death of the embryo or fetus. So uh, I, I found that as kind of a kind of an interesting. Now, Rosanen doesn't believe doesn't believe along those lines. He actually believes that we do have the right to a dead fetus also. But he was talking about how many philosophers actually don't believe we have the right to a dead fetus, just a right to the removal of the fetus or embryo. So I thought that was a little bit of an interesting piece of common ground that we can actually find with, with many uh, pro-choice philosophers. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Now, of course, with Boonin, he, he doesn't believe that the early fetus is a human being uh, with equal rights to, to you and me. Um, right. But, so he would have a, a, another reason to be, you know, he, would, he might bring that into the conversation. But uh, I do think that's interesting, that it, it, especially for those who do, believe that the unborn is a is a, a human being biologically and then those who even might say it's a person uh, from fertilization um, that that's a that's an important uh, set of common ground ideas to, to point out and I, I do think the bodily rights arguments can can help draw that out that's interesting okay so I'd like to go through your book and just talk about some of these questions here as many as we have as we have time for you spend a few chapters talking about why we should find common ground, um, how the abortion conversation is an important one, not one to just treat lightly like a game, uh, and it's not a battle like a war, that kind of thing. But then you start talking about the questions, and 
you separate the, the, the questions and you kind of group them all together and separate them by chapters. Um, this first one we, we kind of touched on a little bit is what do you think about late-term abortion? And that is something that I find often is that's one of the main things we can find as common ground with many abortion choice advocates is that at least most people that I've talked to, and I'm sure most people you, you've talked to as well, uh, would believe that abortions in the first trimester, there's nothing wrong with them, but there is something wrong in the later trimester. And I think it's more because they have this kind of emotional reaction to it because it, it appears more human at the late term than it does at the early term. And I think most people have this instinctual feeling that we should cut it off around viability. So they would say probably about halfway through the second trimester is where we should cut it off because then the fetus or you know, then the fetus is is capable of surviving outside of the uterus on its own. Yeah, I think the um, I think you're right that many pro-choice people have this sort of uh, they have a number of different reasons why they might pick uh, a line of viability or say that they're against late-term abortion, even to the point that they think it should not be legal. Um, mm -hmm. And it's pretty common uh, for people to to say that. I think uh, one conversation I had at the University of Kansas that sort of brought out the importance of this question was uh, we had a poll that just said, should abortion remain legal? And I had two young women signing the yes, one signing the yes side, one signing the no side. And um, I started to, I asked one of them a question. And in the course of the conversation, I asked a whole lot of questions of both of them. But what, early in the conversation, one of them looked up and said, hey, sister, what are you writing? And then she looked at me and said, she really is my sister. And uh, we began to talk. And, and I asked them both, do you think abortion should be legal uh, late in the pregnancy? They both were against that. And uh, it turned out the woman that said abortion should remain legal that it should only remain legal early in the pregnancy using RU-486, no surgical abortion, and only in the case of rape, and I think she also said in the case of the life of the mother. The person who thought abortion should not be legal, thought it should not be legal, except early in the pregnancy for the case of rape, and I think, she, you know, I think life of the mother was a concern for her too, and I think she even said... You know, uh, well, I can't remember if she said RU486, but she definitely said early in the pregnancy. Uh, so these two women signed opposite sides of the poll, but actually believed almost exactly the same thing about abortion. And um, one of the reasons that we use that general question for the poll is just because it gets people to stop. But if I if if I could do a more complicated question and get just as many people to stop, I would, because um, most people don't fit into these really simple categories, yes or no. In fact, we did a free speech board at the university, uh, at Oklahoma State Uni University on election day last November, and on one side we have a straw poll about the, uh, uh, the presidential election, and we started conversations about abortion using that straw poll. And on the other side, we put um, all the different times when someone could get an abortion, or we, you know, we, I think we had each of the trimesters. And then 
we had a number of different circumstances for which someone could, or in which someone would be wanting to get an abortion, and people got to choose whether they thought that was, uh, should be legal or not in each of those cases, and that was a very interesting uh, way to way to start the conversation. Um, you get a better sense for the person's perspective. You can find more common ground. Um, but it's so complicated. You know, you look at that free speech board. People can see it on our website at the Oklahoma State event in November 2016. You can see uh, in those photos, you can see this free speech board. It's very complicated. It's, like, overwhelming to people uh, to see it. Uh, but it is probably more representative of what a lot of people actually think. So. Do you remember why the woman who was signing the yes, it should remain legal side said it should only be done with RU486? I don't remember the reason. I just remember that she was very clear that she did yeah. not believe in surgical abortion. And that conversation that, actually ended. Say again? Oh, no, I was just going to say I find that interesting that she would oppose surgical abortion in that case. Yeah, and it might have been because of the way surgical abortion looks. I, I don't know. Or maybe it just was – maybe she was concerned about the health of women uh, when they go through a surgical abortion. Sometimes that's a concern. But see, these again, these are all things you could explore in the conversation. Many pro-life advocates just assume if somebody thinks abortion should not be legal, it's because the unborn is a human being. Well, no, actually, many people who think abortion should not be legal in the third trimester – believe that because they think it's bad for women. So it could be a point of common ground about third trimester abortion. It should not be legal. But then when we get into the reasons, the why, why do you believe that? We might not have common ground. Um, mm. But it might. It might be that they think it's a human being. I'd say that's the most common reason that people are against abortion in the third trimester. They think it's a human being just like us. And usually, like you said, I think it's because they look at a picture of the child and they think it looks like a child. They, they identify with it. They, they have that natural affection for it. Um, and that's what's hard to demonstrate or, or hard for them to develop that, that affection for the early embryo. The second question in your book is another one that is mentioned frequently. And that question is, should abortion be used as a form of birth control? And this is something that I that I hear often from abortion choice advocates is that they would say that no, it shouldn't be used as, as birth control. In fact, they'll often bring that up just organically. I usually don't even have to ask. They'll just say, you know, yeah, I think abortion should be legal. I don't, you know, I don't think it should be used as like birth control or something. But I think the option should at least be there if she needs it. So they usually bring it up without any prompting, from what I've seen. And this is something that Planned Parenthood used to actually say as well. They printed a brochure back in the 40s or 50s in which they, they had like a, a frequently asked questions section and it said, is abortion birth control? And they said, no, because abortion ends the life of a baby after it begins. So even Planned Parenthood before abortion became legal recognized that abortion was not a form of birth control. And I, and I think many, many women today who support abortion would also say that it shouldn't be used nearly as birth control as well. Yeah, I think that's right. It's been your experience that this is also another one that we can find a lot of common ground with pro-choice people on? Well, I think the you're, on, you're talking about the question on, on birth control, uh, not yeah, using that, abortion as birth control. 
Now, I've just heard a lot of people over the years say things of their own accord like this. Oh, I don't think that, that uh, I don't think that abortion should be used as birth control. That's really what led to me putting the question in the book. I don't, I don't, I have asked people this question. Um, I think the liability with this question is that they don't think women should use it as birth control, but they think it should be legal to be used as birth control. Um, a lot of people would say that. And you have to, of course, define what do you mean by using abortion as birth control. I define it right. in the book as having 5, 10, 15, 20 abortions, you know, using it over and over and over. And many people right. will say that's morally objectionable. They would not want to do that. But then when you ask, should it be legal in that case, then they're going to be mm. much more reluctant to say abortion should not be legal in that case. Yeah, you actually separate the morality from the legality in your book as well. And so, yes, that's definitely an important distinction to keep in mind is that even if someone opposes abortion morally, it doesn't necessarily mean they think that it should be illegal. That's right. And many times people will say, I'm against it or, um, or, or I think it's wrong or I think it's bad. And I want to explore why do they think it's bad. Um, but sometimes I focus on le the legality, whether they think it should be legal, because it gives me a good diagnostic for really what, uh, what, what, do, what do they really believe about abortion? Is it the killing of an innocent human being? Because when do we keep that legal? When do we keep the killing of an innocent human being legal? Um, uh, you know, especially when it's being chosen on an elective basis. The third question then, uh, do you believe men should have the choice to abort their fetuses is one that, that I'm sure a lot of, well, because obviously pro-life people would say, well, no, we don't think anyone should be able to have the choice to abort the fetus. But I, I know a lot of uh, abortion choice people, especially women, would say, no, they shouldn't. And a lot of the pro-choice men will kind of agree with them, I think, sometimes to, just to, to fall in line. But also, just because it's, it's always seen as a woman's issue, and that's the woman's choice because she's the one that's pregnant, when, of course, uh, as a lot of pro-life people teach, and, and I know Jay Faye talks about this in their seminars as well, that abortion does affect men as well. And so the, the men in this question are often brushed away to the side because it's seen as a woman's issue, not, a, not as a man's issue or not even as a couple's issue. Yeah, well, this is sort of a clever way to uh, try to uh, bring up the topic of um, fetal homicide or when, when uh, someone kills a pregnant woman and the fetus, many times that's dealt with as a double homicide. Um, I give some examples of that in the book. I think many people remember the Scott Peterson case as sort of an um, example um, in the news, or that was in the news uh, a while yeah. back. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I haven't asked this question to a lot of people recently, but I think asking questions about, um, you know, should we kill the fetus who's wanted uh, almost nobody believes that that's a good thing. And this draws out the, the important distinction between wanted and unwanted uh, uh, fetuses or embryos. Uh, we treat them very differently in our society. And our, the Justice for All exhibit that, that we built in 2000 
which people can see at our website, jfaweb.org forward slash exhibits. Um, that original exhibit that we built, the third and fourth panel brought out this, this point. You know, we treat wanted unborn children one way. We give them surgeries. We treat them as patients. Uh, we treat unwanted unborn children a different way. I think the point of this question was to try to help people focus in on those wanted unborn children. We treat them as real human beings. And if this person I'm talking to is pro-choice, I want to know if they at least recognize uh, the humanity of this unborn child if the mother believes it's human or if the mother cares about it. And many times I think they do. They, they actually have this interesting approach to the topic that whatever the woman believes about it uh, makes it so. Now, I don't think that's a good argument, but it's, it's an interesting thing to explore. Now, I'd, li I'd like to skip ahead a little bit uh, to the 13th question in the book. Uh, the question being, do you believe what is removed during an abortion is a new whole organism of the human species? I've had a number of conversations on college campuses through JFA and through other organizations that I've volunteered with or partnered with. And for the most part, and this is something that JFA teaches as well, that if someone seems to be denying the humanity of the unborn organism, then what they're really doing, and they don't realize it, is that they're actually denying the personhood. But once we talk about the science of embryology, most everyone is going to agree that it's a, a whole individual organism of the human species. I've gotten that on college campuses, and I think that's that's what a lot of people are doing. But it seems that when I have conversations through social media like Facebook, there are a lot of times that I actually have to defend the proposition that the unborn from fertilization are genetically distinct individual whole human beings. And occasionally I'll have someone try to argue against the scientific consensus. They'll argue that, well, you know, it, it's, not, it's not the case that scientists are, are, have a consensus on this question, that, you know, it's not scientifically sure that human life begins with fertilization. And so what, what's the, um, I guess, is, is this something you found through, because you've had a lot more conversations and discussions than I have. Uh, based on all of the discussions you've had, do you find that it's fairly rare for someone to actually deny the biological humanity of the unborn? Or do you think that a lot of times they kind of use it as just kind of like a fallback uh, if, you, if you respond to all of their other concerns? Or how do you, how do you find is kind of the, not, not really, I guess ordinary isn't really the, the right word for it, but the most, I guess the most common way of, of talking about this particular topic? Well, I, I think I would put it uh, maybe, maybe the, conversely to the way you put it a minute ago, um, hmm. uh, that, that it's, it, it's uh, I have a better chance of getting common ground with the person about the biology, uh, at least early on in the conversation, than I do uh, getting uh, common ground about personhood or whether the unborn has rights and value. Uh, it's 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 like it, it there's there's um, uh, it's maybe a a lower bar they have to reach or it's not as hard for them to agree with it, especially when they see how I'm cashing it out. I think some of the most difficult uh, or one of the most difficult parts of the conversation for many pro-life and pro-choice advocates is is that 
pro-choice advocates many times think that we're saying more than we're trying to say. Hmm. So I will make a case that the unborn is a living human organism, and the pro-choice advocate assumes that, that, that what that means to me is Therefore, the unborn is a person, have equal rights to us, and if the woman has bodily rights, they're not significant enough to trump the rights of the, of the fetus. You know, they attach all of those other statements mm. to me just saying it's a living human organism. And this is something that all of us do in communication, right? We attach baggage or extra mm. assumptions to, the, to statements that people make or we assume that they must mean this other thing because that's where they're going. That's what they're getting at. And I think mm. that is a sort of a difficulty that plagues us as pro-life advocates when we're just trying to make a strictly biological case just so we can get a foundation. Okay, are we at least on the same page that this is that the unborn is a living thing? Uh, you know, we just want to, is it a living human thing? Is it living human tissue? Is it a living, a living human organism? We're just trying to get this biological foundation so that then we can have a reasonable philosophical discussion that has some, you know, the, at least these biological facts clarified for us. Yeah. And many times people sort of sense where you're headed and if they have, you know, if you've had some training, they sense that you have more training than they do, and uh, they then resist. And they, you'll hear people say things like, "Well, it, it's human, but it's not human," hmm. or "It's alive, but it's not living." I mean, I, I think I was at the University of Oklahoma just two. I think this was something that I heard on that campus just two weeks ago. It was amazing. I wish I had a recording of it. It was, it was, it, most pro-life advocates would laugh at it as incoherent. I saw it as the person trying to give me some information about like what they meant. Now I had built a rapport and a context, a, 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 a space in that conversation where the person could uh, have the freedom to try to work these ideas out. I was not going to, I, I think they knew, the person knew it, and I was demonstrating it in every, every you know, everything they said. I, I was not going to step on what they said or try to, to get a zinger in there to try to help, help people see how foolish it is. They said, it's human, but it's not human. I mean, what could that possibly mean? <laughs> no, I thought that. I said, no, that's really interesting that you would say that. And so, you know, and then I used that as a way to clarify, well, let's just, let's, let's see if we agree on biologically uh, or biological facts first, and let's just stay there. You know, let's talk about my cheek cells. If I take cheek cells out of my cheek with a, with a toothpick or a swab and give it to the doctor so he can put them on a, on a slide and put them under the microscope and see if I have some kind of disease, have I just? Uh, you know, what is on the slide? Are those living things? Are they living things? Okay, good. Are they living human tissue? Okay, good. Are they living human organisms? You know, and then we can, we can compare that to the embryo. It's very different. Of course, cheek cells are a functional part of my organism, uh, but the unborn is not a functional part of anybody's organism. It's its own organism with its own 
functional parts. It's a whole rather than a part. Um, and I think that can bring a lot of uh, clarity to the conversation, but I, I don't want to give our listeners the impression that that is simple or that we always find common ground on this point. I definitely have arguments with people or, or you know, friendly arguments uh, where we're giving reasons back and forth about whether the unborn is a living human organism. That, it, it, it's not a foregone conclusion or something that's obvious to people. Um, but I will say, many times it's just getting the terms clear and, and, and figuring out how to talk the same language as the other person that's most, that, that's the, that's most of the work. That's most of the work. What would you have to say to someone who insists that all pro-choice people are baby killers and that we should use terms like pro-death in our conversations with them? Well, it's interesting. Uh, all pro-choice people, that's a, that's a lot of people. And uh, it, it seems like they're, uh, one thing that we can be certain of is they're very different. And their, uh, their level of complicity, um, I don't know if that's the right word, but the level of being complicit in abortions in their community is, prob- is, is going to be different from one person to the next. And whether they've had experience with abortion whether they have a character that is uh, to want to, that's very selfish or a character that's very selfless or, you know, whether they think abortion is is a necessary evil. I mean, all of these things are going to be different from person to person. So it's hard to make any generalizations about, uh, about all pro-choice, all pro-choice people. And that's, I, I think the, I think many times pro-life advocates want to want to speak truth and say, if you're for abortion, you're for the killing of babies. Uh, I want that truth to be able to be heard by the person. So I want that to come out probably at a point in the conversation where we have enough rapport where I can ask a question like, well, do you think then that, that abortion is actually the killing of a human being? And what do you think we should do about that? That to me is going to be, I think, much more powerful in the person's life to help them grapple with that truth that abortion kills babies than me saying to them they're baby killers when I don't even know them and I don't even know anything about their, their beliefs. Uh, when I've gone to people and given them the benefit of the doubt and, and, try, and believed that they, are, they love human beings and they actually love women and they love babies, um, uh, but maybe they don't think the unborn is a baby, you know, when I've given them that benefit of the doubt, I've found many times that people surprise me I, you know, they, they surprise me with how concerned they are about human beings and how open they are to our position, to hearing a, a good reason for our position. There's a, uh, we have a, a Twitter feed called Seven Conversations, 
that uh, I would recommend to, to the listeners. We've, we've written every post on that feed for the purpose of sharing with pro-choice people uh, or pro-life people. It's just something that anybody can use to start a conversation. But one of my favorite posts on Seven Conversations is a little free speech board uh, comment that was written on one of our free speech boards and it, it makes essentially the point that I just made, but I think more beautifully. So I'd encourage people to go look for that, that post. Well, once again, where can people go to to find your book uh, for free? So they can go to commongroundbook.com, commongroundbook.com. And there's a link to a free book offer. They just have to fill out a form. And uh, as I explain on that form, uh, I send them the first part of the book. I I kept the book into two halves. I send them the first part, and then uh, if they send me an email telling me that they've had a conversation using that, that, that first part of the book, I'll send them the second part. So everything about the book for me and really everything about Justice for All is encouraging people to have conversations. So I decided to use my free book offer uh, with that in mind. So you can get the, the first part of the book uh, without, but just by filling out the form. But the second part, you, you know, I, I, you have to uh, pay with the conversation, if you will. So. Yeah, I think that's a great, uh, a great offer, obviously, because I, I took advantage of it myself back when I was a, back when I was still green as a, as a pro-life advocate. Uh, so where can people find you online? Are there any other websites or, or books you'd like to plug while I have you here? Sure. Well, Justice for All's website is JFA, Justice for All, jfaweb.org. So jfaweb.org. There are many free resources there, including our Learn at Home program, which is something that people can do in one hour to become a better pro-life advocate. Um, I'd encourage people to... Uh, to use the resources at Life Training Institute, um, the Case for Life website, and um, I think maybe the, the one recommendation that uh, is, I think uh, I'd like to leave the listeners with is a recommendation to bring Clinton out to speak. Um, Clinton is a, just a delightful person. Uh, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine, but I'm not saying this just because of that. It's, it's really because Every time Clinton comes on a JFA trip, um, he, uh, he's a delight to be around. He's intelligent. He's got good things to share. I think you would be uh, really happy to have him at, at any event um, uh, speaking at your event. So that's my appeal to your listeners, Clinton, but I would say all those things also to you. We, we really, I, I really enjoy being with you. Well, well thanks, Steve. The, uh, the feeling is definitely mutual. That's all the time that we have for our, for our show, and I'd like to thank you for listening. I, I know that the information here is incredibly important. And, Steve, thank you again for coming on and allowing me to interview you. Well, it was great being with you. I had a great time. Thanks. So if you enjoyed the interview, we would just ask that you share it around social media, uh, rate and review us on our Facebook page as well as on iTunes. The information here today will definitely help people become a much better communicator of the of the pro-life position, especially if you go to commongroundbook.com to uh, take advantage of the free book offer from Steve. 
Now, this is a weekly podcast, give or take, because <laughs> obviously I've been missing a few weeks recently, uh, but it's intended to be a weekly podcast. Uh, and I, I hope to get the weekly schedule back up and running here pretty soon. But it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www prolifetraining.com, which is the Life Training Institute website, and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, you can also indicate that in, in the notes section. And donations are also tax deductible. We've kind of gotten away from the weekly schedule, and like I said, I hope to get back onto it. So not really a next week's topic to announce, just that like I said, we still have about three episodes I still have to do post-production on to get produced in post-production and then to put live on the website. And so we have a couple of of episodes on bodily rights coming up, as well as we're going to start talking about personhood and how philosophers talk about personhood. And I think we're going to start with Marianne Warren's conception of personhood from her essay on the moral and legal status of abortion. And we're also going to be bringing on Nancy Piercy to talk about a book that she has releasing in January, among some other interviews that we're setting up. So once again, I'd like to thank you for joining me and thank Steve as well for the interview, and we will see you next time. (laughs) 